Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Do you know a lot about badgers? How did that analogy come to mind? She's from the Big Ten. Of course she knows a lot about badgers. It's true. Ah. It's, it's deeply inculcated within all of us. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with Jane Coaston, ProPublica's Dara Lind. Uh, we were going to talk today about the reopening of the schools, or not, uh, which may or may not be happening. This is a, a, a topic whose valence has shifted around, I think, very rapidly. I published a story on this uh, recently, and I was reporting it out, which took several days. And when I started working on it, the whole meaning of we should be reopening the schools to the people who were pushing for it was to say the government needed to be doing more during July and August because reopening schools was very, very important. So it was understood by, by everybody I talked to who was saying that they were calling for prioritization of school opening over other kinds of objectives like minimizing public expenditure or maximizing um, bar and restaurant revenue. And I had this piece and it was all about um, different ideas for how you could do that and what are the fiscal policy trade-offs and blah, blah, blah. And like literally the afternoon before my piece was ready to go live, Trump came out and like flipped the script on the whole thing by becoming this like really aggressive advocate for opening up the schools, but which he didn't seem to mean anything along the lines of what the people I'd been speaking to meant. He was just saying, like, fuck it, <laughs> bring the kids back to school. Right, right. and like to, to the contrary, instead of saying, what do we as the federal government need to do to enable this to happen in terms of like putting money toward the problem, was threatening in the way that Donald Trump does without a super apparent awareness of what the federal government can and can't do uh, to withhold federal funding from school districts that didn't reopen, which is literally the uh, the opposite. Yeah, it was all, a real race no to the top of this logic, a real common core of logic regarding federal disbursement of funds, you might say. This is a very this is a very specific reference, but I think it's worth backing up for a second and talking about what we know and what we don't know when it comes to schools and coronavirus, because the answer is we don't know a whole lot. Although we actually do know something more than like we did several months ago. Right. I do. I think yes. that like the tone, I think this is something where there are obviously really significant equities on both sides, but some of the, some of the kind of ruefulness of the coverage that I've seen over the summer has been a, you know, kind of hand wringing that, oh, we made the wrong decision in spring or the, you know, in it, the the closure of schools in spring has brought more problems than it solved that kind of thing. But it, like it is epidemiologically true that like in spring we knew nothing and now we know a tiny, tiny bit. And that tiny, tiny bit is helpful when it comes to the question of do we prioritize opening schools or opening other things? So what do we know? So we know that as of 
now-ish, children under 18 make up about 22% of the population, but just 2% of positive coronavirus tests. And there isn't any data yet available globally on student-teacher transmission, which I think is a concern that a lot of teachers have been raising and teachers and staff. I think that there's been kind of this uh, meme in certain circles that this is just the teachers' unions trying to work on behalf of Democrats, which is one kind of weird to say, but also there are a lot of people who work at schools who are not teachers, as anyone who has attended a school would know. But so there's not a lot of data on student to teacher transmission and not a lot of information on whether or not kids get it, could become asymptomatic carriers at school and then bring it home. But there has been some concern about teacher to teacher, staff to staff transmission. And so in Israel, for example, there's been a second shutdown um, as a result of outbreaks that have taken place at schools. But again, it's unclear how those outbreaks happen. Is it a teacher came and then spread it to other staff or a student? Because it's just unclear. Yeah, I do think that there's a certain point at which you have to acknowledge that absence of evidence is evidence of absence here. This is not like something where, you know, no, uh, where no one has been paying any attention to schools and childcare facilities that have reopened. And like, so we just, you know, it's, this has been pretty closely monitored. And at a certain point, the fact that like, there is evidence of adult to adult transmission in a school setting, and there's a lot less evidence of child to child or child to adult transmission is suggestive that like, okay, there obviously is a non-zero epidemiological risk in reopening schools, but those epidemiological risks might be more elevated in like some regards than others. And it might be the case that even if you're assuming like a non-zero amount of risk of child to adult transmission just by having a classroom open period, that that risk might be outweighed by the risk of not having the child in school, which is, I think, the other thing that we've really learned that we didn't know a few months ago was just how badly it would go for children and families to try to move schools entirely online and do virtual learning, both from a like academic achievement perspective and from a behavioral health, mental health, you know, parental ability to continue to continue there to continue to go to their jobs perspective i think with all these things one thing you have to ask is what is the next best fallback to life as normal right so the way vox.com normally operates is that most of the staff is in either the big office in New York or the big office in DC. There are people who are full-time remote. Um, there is generous uh, sort of work from home today if you want to kind of stuff. But the norm is that people are in the office. Uh, people not being in the office obviously reduces the risk of disease transmission. It is also inconvenient. Um, there have been a lot of logistical struggles with the recording of this podcast, for example. But it works okay. Like, Vox.com has continued to publish. Uh, This podcast has continued to come out. The audio quality of some episodes has been a little iffy due to my screw-ups. But Jeff has probably had to work harder than he normally does on editing and and shipping the episodes. But it's okay. You know, like, this is recognizably Vox is continuing to publish. So we had that question around schools, right? If you tell people, okay, well, you're going to do digital education instead, like how good of a substitute for normal school is that? My first story on this, you know, I, I did it in the spring and I talked to different education experts. I was familiar with the literature on summer learning loss, uh, which is a somewhat disputed idea in education studies about whether kids sort of fall back uh, during the summertime. I was surprised to find incredibly high levels of concern among experts, including summer learning loss skeptics. And I think as data has come in from, for example, uh, Zern, which is one of the main online math platforms, um, they've shown that Maybe kids in the highest third of the socioeconomic spectrum are keeping up. There's some interpretive question as to whether or not that's the case, but but they may be. But in the bottom two thirds, uh, they clearly are not. 
right? And it's easy enough to understand how, how that comes about, right? I mean, the more educated you are yourself as a parent, uh, both the more likely it is that you have a white collar job that can be done from home, and the more likely it is that you have at least a reasonable approximation of a professional teacher's understanding of elementary school math concepts and therefore an ability to convey them to children or help them out with it. Uh, more working class families, uh, there are lots of parents in American public schools who don't speak English fluently. Uh, they are both much more likely to be out of the house during the day and thus like literally unable to do anything, but also to just not have the skills to help a child navigate an online learning platform. Um, so it's it started to look like really bad. I mean, I, I did a story, I showed the the chart from the Opportunity Insights Project, and you can really see in the bottom two thirds of, they do it by zip code rather than by household income, but in the bottom two thirds of, of zip codes, there's been loss of what, what scholars estimate to be about 20 to 25% of academic progress relative to where you would expect already. Right. That's from wiping out just the tail end of, of last year's schooling. If you go forward to a whole other semester or, or year of that, you know, kids will have lost a, a year and a half worth of education, which is a big social cost in a way that sometimes our audio recording gets messed up isn't right like it's a it's a very different kind of thing and we never quite had a point where we were like even did an approximation of like what's the cost benefit on that um some of that is the uncertainty as to what the benefit is but it's just the the cost is really high one piece of this that i think that most people can agree on is that no matter where you stand on this particular issue if anyone were to do anything to get public schools specifically to open, that would require a lot of money. And what we've seen from Congress is that less than 1% of federal pandemic stimulus funds have been have gone to public schools, public schools that would then need PPE, ideally, or face shields or some other means of providing social distancing, which so, social distancing in a crowded sixth grade classroom might not be entirely possible because have you met a sixth grader? And so it's, it's been interesting to see that the White House essentially has been like, we'll pull funds if you don't open and uh, figure it out. It's like, you know, it's like throwing a badger into a bathroom and closing the door and just being like, whatever happens in there, I'm sure it'll be fine. Right. I mean, the Trump administration is, you know, not uncharacteristically sending mixed messages on this if you look at like the entire executive branch, because it's not just like that superintendents are trying to read the president's tweets and figure out what is the best reopening plan for them based on that. There's also the public guidance that's been issued by the CDC, which says that like opening schools fully in the fall is the highest risk epidemiologically and that like having everything fully online is the lowest risk. And then there's also this kind of private, more specific guidance that's circulated to federal response teams, which the New York Times reported on uh, over the weekend that critiqued specific reopening plans and was, you know, generally regarded by like actual school professionals as, gee, this is the stuff we wish the government had been giving us publicly six weeks ago. Like this is the kind of detailed risk mitigation strategy that makes a lot more sense than just telling us on the one hand, well, the CDC says it's a bad idea. And on the other hand, but if you don't do it, we're going to cut your money. There is, the other thing that I think is is really worth pointing out here is that the American Academy of Pediatrics is actually like out there saying that it's more important to reopen schools than not, uh, because they're looking at the kind of, you know, they're looking at the kind of educational outcomes that Matt described. They're looking at the long-term concerns of toxic stress on children and, and kind of interpolating that backwards to, okay, if parents can't work because they have to be taking care of their kids, that's going to cause more financial distress in the household, and that's going to have a negative impact on children's health. So 
there is a community of people who are kind of trying to figure out what's the way to do this that best balances the risks of reopening with the risks of not reopening. And they're being given some support by the federal government, but it's not at the top level of messaging at all, which is to say the federal government isn't kind of using the public opinion leading function, bully pundit, whatever, to get the people who will actually make the decision about whether schools reopen, the like boards of education, state governments, teachers unions, to get all of those stakeholders on, you know, on board with like a single coherent message of what is a good idea to do. Part of what makes this frustrating, right, is we spent a lot of time debating I would say fairly fake trade-offs between public health and, quote-unquote, the economy. Uh, but we're now getting to a point where it, it's just obvious that the American economy is going to struggle more over the next two months than the German economy or, or the New Zealand economy. And the reason it's going to struggle is that the public's health situation is worse. With schools, I think you face a trade-off that is a lot less fake. Uh, because children are personally at very low risks of dying from COVID-19. And because educating young children is something where face-to-face presence is unusually valuable, um, there there is a real trade-off between like clearly the safest thing to do would be to say we are not that interested in children's education or um, mother's career development and everybody is just going home for the duration, right? But those are big costs. Absolutely. I think that I just want to jump in quickly because I think that something that's getting missed is that in areas that have said we're just going to do all distancing, for instance, in Baltimore, you know, they've been like, okay, every kid's going to get a Chromebook because, you know, the lack of a computer at home is a big challenge if you're trying to do distance learning. And they're 350,000 Chromebooks short. And that's not including, you know, do you have high speed Internet at home, meaning that you could be able to use Zoom, the very platform we are currently using? Do you have these mechanisms of doing so? It's one of the things about this pandemic is that it's been meshed on to existing inequalities and just made everything way worse. And this is another example. It's also worth pointing out that like the pre-pandemic solution to digital access gaps like this was the public library, uh. which is to say, like, <laughs> the only institution that existed that you could, like, bring your kids to if you needed to print something out or, like, research something on the internet and didn't have internet at home is now another epidemiological risk. And, and this really brings together sort of classic inner city problems with, with rural problems. I'm I'm here in the country. I am paying a much higher price for broadband internet than we pay in D.C. and getting a much worse service. Um, It's very challenging for people in in low-density areas to get the kind of consistent, high-quality access that these these distance concepts depend on. But the thing is, is that we've made trade-offs external to the school situation. Like Jane was talking about money for schools. But a different thing is that, you know, so many state and city governments have been moving to get people to wear masks more through different kinds of moral suasion, formal mandates. The the regulations differ, but pretty much everywhere now, the public authorities are like, people should be wearing masks. And the evidence looks really good on masks. Masks are very helpful, especially when compliance is widespread. You can't wear a mask uh, while you're eating. You can't wear a mask while you're drinking stuff. Um, I tried the other day, not thinking about it, to take a sip of iced coffee while my mask was still on. And I can tell you, it doesn't It doesn't work. Matt, uh, your commitment to empirics and original reporting really <laughs> shines in this moment yeah, of crisis. It's, it's amazing. I uh, spilled coffee all over myself. I don't recommend it. So... States and cities, though, they want bars and restaurants to be open, both because they want people to have jobs and also because bars and restaurants generate tax revenue, right? But the federal government could. Interest rates are very low. The federal government could give states and cities money so that they can get by without that tax revenue. And they could give bar and restaurant owners money so that they can cover the rent and make do on takeout and outside dining things. Because if you think about restaurant economics, right, if you're limited to outdoor and takeout service, you can keep employing people 
uh, because you sell food for more than it costs to cook it, right? But you have this huge overhead, which is like the fixed costs of your physical facility, where you paid a price that was proportionate to its size and the desirability of the location. And there's just no way you can cover those fixed costs for the duration on outdoor and, and takeout. Like you wouldn't have gotten a, a, a place like that. But the federal government can square those circles, right? Like we can just make the monetary problem go away. And then you focus on schooling where there actually is an internal trade-off. But instead, basically every place has decided until things get totally out of control, look, we need to allow some indoor dining to take place because we need the, the revenue. And that's really what's crushed the schools because you know, how risky are schools? Like, it's somewhat risky. But if very few people are infected, then it's really not that risky, right? Like, there's no place where school systems have been like ground zero for an epidemic. But if an epidemic is raging everywhere, it's like, it's pretty risky, right? Like, teachers are going to have concerns and parents are going to have concerns. You know, we've been talking about the inequities in the educational process, but there was a great Washington Post story and they were looking at different neighborhoods in D.C. And it's exactly the communities where, like, I am most high-mindedly concerned about the lack of schooling that have also had the most people dying of COVID-19 and where there's the most anxiety among parents and, and students about the implications of exposing themselves in that way. So it's just it's once you push the trade off into the school system, it, it doesn't get resolved very well. Well, and the other thing that happens, and I think that that Washington Post article is a very good example of this, is that once you push the trade-off onto the school system, you abdicate any kind of public awareness responsibility. Like, I think that people are often very concerned about anything having to do with their children and are more risk-averse when it looks, you know, about anything having to do with their children than yes, they would be another Right, like in people other circumstances. People are very concerned about their children. And so when you have, like, when you have a disease that looks like the flu in most other respects, but unlike the flu, doesn't ha appear to have children as a leading vector of infection within the community, it makes sense that it's super counterintuitive and that you're going to have to do a lot of work to educate parents about, like, your children are in fact at lower risk of infection than you think they are. This may in fact be better for your children's long-term health. Like if you have the American Academy of Pediatrics coming out and saying that, like that's that seems like useful information that maybe the federal government should be doing more to promote and that might solve a lot of these kind of personal trade-offs that these communities feel where they're kind of they've been abandoned epidemiologically and so they'd rather be abandoned educationally as well than try to you know risk an infection that may or may not actually be the highest you know the highest probability i think we may need to i think we should take a break and then yep. i want to talk a little bit about how this is impacting teachers and the yeah. way that teachers unions have gotten involved in this conversation which is what we've seen in a couple of states Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. 
Affordable, high-quality basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. It is worth noting that this is a a question and a problem where all of the solutions are confusing and bad. And as Dara said, the American Academy of Pediatrics is saying that schools opening is the best thing possible for children. However, more than one fourth of public school teachers are over the age of 50 which puts them at increased risk of coronavirus. And we've seen already in a number of states in which, um, and globally, in which teachers and staff have been impacted or infected with coronavirus and died from coronavirus. And it's worth noting that on several college campuses, for example, the first people to get very sick and to die have not been professors or students, but part people who are working in food service or members of the janitorial services. And when we're talking about the school environment, so much of this becomes a binary choice. Like, do you care about the students or do you care about the teachers? One, that's stupid. Two, there are a lot of people working at any school. And so while many districts are saying, okay, you know, if we're going to do this, we're going to buy millions of dollars worth of masks and hand sanitizer and hire additional custodial staff, many of those coming from private entities, not any in any association with either the school district or kind of a more public entity, those custodial staff are at increased risk of coronavirus. So this is this is a really complex issue, but I think it's worth having a conversation about how teachers unions and teachers themselves are thinking about this question. So this has kind of been my question, like, for all of the rhetoric in, you know, like among conservatives and state government in particular, that teachers unions are this like massive force in politics, that nothing can be done to change education because the teachers unions are in the way. Like, I haven't seen that in this debate yet. And I think I, I wonder how much of that is just because this is a little bit nation still. And so unions are trying to figure out how their members really feel about things and how much of it is that teachers unions may not be as much of a presence at a district by district level or like at a state by state level or whatever, than we might have been led to believe. I think from conversations that I have had with union leaders, that one issue here is that the union leadership is uh, riding the tiger to an extent on this. And that they recognize that the severe problems with remote instruction are, in terms of the macro politics of American education, a great point in favor of the union position on a lot of ongoing issues, right? Like a big concern of teachers unions politically has been states' willingness to authorize digital-only charter schools, Right. And so having a big national conversation in which mainstream people, right, in which Dana Goldstein and Michelle Goldberg at the New York Times are saying, like, distance learning doesn't work. And everybody's saying that. And even Republicans are saying, like, school is really, really important. Right. In person instruction by professional public school teachers is really important. Those are winning arguments for teachers unions that they would like to embrace. Right. And say, you are right. We really need to reopen the schools. We need X, Y and Z to do it. But honestly, even whether it goes well or not, like as long as they can come out of this with the point that in-person traditional public education is incredibly important to children's futures, like not reforming it, but just doing it has drastic value. That is what unions have been trying to say about American public education for the past 20, 30 years. 
individual teachers fear for their lives and are not necessarily professional political operatives in the way that the leadership of AFT and NEA are. And they don't want to get sick and die, right? And are advancing arguments that maximize that goal, which is an understandable goal, right? But don't necessarily pay close attention to the macro politics. If they sell you on the idea that distance learning is okay, right? Maybe not ideal, but it's fine. An acceptable set of trade-offs. That actually opens the door to lots of things that America's teachers are not going to like down the road in terms of, you know, quote-unquote disruption of the educational system. If middle-class people can successfully hire a gap year college student to tutor their kid and three others for sort of the regular cost of daycare for a little kid, and that works out just as well for them uh, as regular school, like that is a really dire implication for the future of public education. And so the union leaders who I think are smart and like really understand politics. And I mean, that's why you become the leader of America's major labor unions is because you're smart about politics. Um, they are pushing one way and their membership is panicking because this is a totally fucked up situation that is putting them at, at, at risk. And so it is, I think, reducing their political efficacy relative to something like the wildcat strikes in Arizona, where like everybody agreed what they were trying to do there. Um, and, and you really see this with uh, higher education, right, which is uh, more of a top down industry where, you know, the university administrators clearly want to get kids back on campus. In that case, I think less out of like touching concern for the well-being of various 19-year-olds than because like schools, all private schools, but flagship public universities too, right? Like they are selling a product. And if the product can be substituted by watching video lectures, like that's a real problem for them. Um, and they don't want to say that that's going to be okay, even though the problems with um, having college students on campus in dorms from a public health perspective seem like really big to me, right? Like there, I, there's an open question in my eyes, like all things considered for public health, it might be better for eight-year-olds to be in school than to be like latchkey kids with potentially no supervision. Um, clearly it is safer for 20-year-olds to be in mom's basement watching Zooms uh, than to be on campus going to parties. And uh, I mean, we know what college is like. It, it's... Yeah, there's a, the, the higher ed thing is, you know, in the same way that the K-12 debate over reopening has usefully disaggregated, okay, schools are a learning center, but they're also providing a daycare function. And like, if they only do one and not the other, even if they do the first one super well, you're still not going to get the benefits. The higher ed debate has made it very clear that Colleges are a source of tuition revenue for administrators. They are a, you know, way to maximally like educate children at minimal kind of personal inconvenience for instructors. And they're a place to hang out for students. <laughs> and those those equities are leading to a very screwed up debate because higher ed has been pursuing a you know, the students are the customers. They're the ones who are, you know, that they and their parents are the ones who are making the decision to give us all of this money and therefore we need to cater to them. And so at this point, they have a natural alliance be between administrations that want students on campus and students who want to be on campus that goes against both what their instructors are saying and what public health might recommend is the best option. It's also interesting because I think that the um, this is a separate subject, but I also think that the higher education like discussion has once again been hijacked by conversations about Ivy League universities, where the entirety of the American educational experience becomes Yale, which Dara, you went to Yale, but I would say that 
I, I haven't even seen Yale in these debates, but that's wild. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, I mean, I've been seeing a lot of conversation about like what Harvard and Yale are going to do. And I'm like, I'm actually more interested in what like Washington Community College is going to do, because I think that that will be more impactful on the most people who are attending higher education facilities. But yeah, but frankly, that's also downstream of the K-12 conversation, because so many non-traditional college students are trying to balance parenting and college enrollment. And like if you don't know when your quarterly community college schedule, like like course catalog comes out, whether you're going to be able to, you know, to take a couple of hours off, you know, of in in like the afternoon or whether you're going to have to be babysitting your kids all day. That's going to matter a lot. It seems also connected. And also, as as Matt put it so eloquently, this is also fucked up. Like this is a, a problem with very few solutions that work for each constituency involved and each constituency is essential to the institution we're discussing. But to to actually defend for once the focus on elite oh. institutions. Okay, Matt. In, in this okay. case, I th- no, no, in this case, I think it tells us something important, right? Which is that Harvard has one of the most viable reopening plans that I've seen from everybody. And it involves the students need to agree to be tested once every three days, right? And Harvard can do that because Harvard has a lot of money. And specifically, one thing that fancy universities have is like on staff scientists and laboratories. So they can commit to a plan like that. And when you look at it mathematically, pa- Paul Romer has these great models on his website. And he shows that like, even if the tests are not that accurate, even if they have only like a 70% accuracy rate, with that level of frequency and widespreadness, it suppresses infection actually quite effectively. So that could be a model for everyone, except of course it can't be a model for everyone. Stanford is doing something similar to that. Uh, other schools that have a lot of money and like, big lab infrastructure could do it. But we have never had a real federal push around that kind of dramatic increase in testing capacity to allow people who, you know, one way to do it is 20 million tests a day randomly for the whole population. And and that should be enough to sort of let things go. Uh, Another way to do it is to cut things down, right? Is to say, look, white collar people, like just stay the fuck home. Right. And you don't need to be in this. But the people who are working in the stores should be tested frequently. The police officers should be tested very frequently. The teachers who are in the schools should be tested very frequently. And then you can get a much broader range of safety. Like there is no need for these meatpacking plants to have become such disasters. It's really hard to control the spread of infection in that kind of facility. So what you need is very frequent surveillance testing because that can substitute for distancing. And institutions with the resources and technical skills are putting that together in the higher education context, but we have not had the national government do that. And if anything, the the CDC has been discouraging it. They keep saying tests should be used for diagnostic purposes. And that's because they don't have a plan to create enough testing availability. They don't want to admit that like there is a solution and they're just not making it possible. So they're being very hand-wavy about it. They, they even put out a statement. They said, well, there's no evidence that preemptive surveillance testing is going to be an effective means for controlling spread on college campuses, which is like, that is literally true. But like, how could there be evidence of that? Right. Like we've never started a college semester during the COVID-19 pandemic. And it's the most like, slipshod way of talking about evidence and burdens of proof in a disaster. It's like saying, well, like we have no evidence that if you dive off a cliff, you'll die, Matt. Like you've never tried it before. (laughs) Maybe your skull is made of, you know, adamantium, but like it isn't, (laughs) right? Um, And it's, I mean, again, I feel like every time I podcast on the subject, I just end up frustrated, but it is a mind-boggling failure um, that it makes me sad. The reason that this is so important to discuss as a like detailed weedsy, okay, what are the specific epidemiological dynamics of like child to adult transmission and how do you mitigate that in a classroom setting? Or like, you know, one of the things that the American Academy of Pediatrics talks about is like, if you 
put older kids at desks five feet apart instead of six feet apart. Like you can put more, you know, you can bring more children back to school and that's going to be better for them compared to the marginal trade off of not adhering to the full six feet, you know, recommended CDC guideline estimate. But these conversations are important because they both encapsulate a broader debate over like what are the equities and trade-offs as we try to figure out a new normal that's going to be sustainable until such time as a COVID vaccine is developed, but also because you can't resolve any of the other issues associated with an economy, associated with the economy, associated with the continued spread of the disease, as long as you have America's families in a total holding pattern. And I, I don't think that that conversation, you know, I don't think that the conversation is happening in an a, anywhere near the level it needs to happen for people to be back on track to do this again in September. And it's all very terrifying. And I can't imagine what people who are actually parents and dealing with with this are are going through. And you know, the other the other thing that I would love to see more broadly is a a kind of conversation about what are things that parent-free people like, or the parent-free, the child-free people like me can do to support without physically being present uh, the people in our communities who are having to deal with all of this in their homes. Right. Because again, the throw a badger in a bathroom and lock the door strategy appears to have proven ineffective. Um, And on that... Do you know a lot about badgers? How did that analogy come to mind? She's from the Big Ten. Of course she knows a lot about badgers. It's true. It's it's deeply ah. inculcated within all of us. But on that note, should we move on to our white paper? Yeah, let's do that. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, let's take a break. White paper it up. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge... That takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's insight assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a... 360 degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Okay, um, so we have today voting and political participation in the aftermath of the HIV AIDS epidemic by Hani Mansour, Daniel Reese, and James M. Reeves, uh, which is, you know, of interest as a scholarly subject, also has some resonances to today's politics. Um, so they are basically looking at, they, they actually open up with this uh, sort of funny quote from Newt Gingrich, uh, where he's saying, I looked at the full context, and he was sort of saying that, like, uh, there's some culture war aspects of this that play to our favor, um, you know, because thinking about the context of where the sort of initial communities were. But then, but then uh, Gingrich goes on to say, um, if the Reagan administration manages to mishandle this issue and it becomes a much larger public health crisis, then at some point it becomes a question of why did they fail? And then it becomes a downside proposition for people who, in effect, have been defending the Reagan administration. Uh, again, you would... Uh, these were words of wisdom that Donald Trump should have considered. And, you know, Newt's point is that, look, at a certain point, you can like posture against gay people or, you know, IV drug users or whoever you want. But if an epidemic is raging out of control, like people are just going to get mad at you and you need to try to do a good job. Um, so they're looking at, you know, which congressional districts were hardest hit by HIV AIDS and then what happens uh, some years after that. And they find that the increase in Democratic Party vote share goes up, that the increase in contributions to Democrats goes up, and that 
in general, um, you know, it's not a national level backlash necessarily against Republicans, but that in places where there were very high rates of uh, HIV AIDS incidents, there was a backlash against GOP governance that's visible in the early 1990s. Um Again, I mean, I feel like this whole paper is written with a a heavy thread of Trump subtext. I, I appreciate, I especially appreciated early on. It mentions the um, Ebola case in 2014, in which a Liberian national in Dallas was diagnosed with Ebola, and then the two nurses who treated him contracted it as well. Did a doctor who returned from Guinea to New York, and if you recall, this was a giant media cluster. And Trump tweeted about it a lot. It was interesting because concern about Ebola was negatively related to voter turnout and Democratic vote share. But apparently it was unrelated to presidential approval. But it's also interesting because one aspect of this is that the politics of HIV, especially early on in the epidemic in which it was so clearly aimed at a demographic that people just didn't give a fuck about, uh, namely LGBT people and um, intravenous drug users and uh, like folks from various disadvantaged communities who were all deeply impacted by um, a disease that was first known as GRID, gay-related infectious disease. But what you see towards the end of the 1980s, and I I appreciated, um, they reference both ACT UP, AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, which put a lot of pressure on the CDC and, um, interestingly, uh, Dr. Fauci to raise funding and increase funding for research. And that political organizing was then transmogrified onto the LGBT rights movement more broadly in the 1990s and 2000s. But they also note that once HIV starts impacting people who are not among that cohort that people did not care about, um, you know, once you see the case of Ryan White, once, um, you know, it's been referenced a lot, but the case of Rock Hudson, a well-known actor who um, only disclosed his positive status when he was very close to death. Um, once Elizabeth Taylor got very involved in the fight and it becomes a issue that is more impactful at a broad level, that's when you start seeing it becoming not a useful cudgel against the population with HIV, but a very useful political weapon for folks who are concerned about HIV and want to do more to stop it. I think that that is true, but I think that the other thing going on here is that there wasn't an obvious partisan valence to supporting communities ravaged by AIDS until the 1990s, right? Like the Ryan White Act, which is, you know, the 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 kind of function of like, oh, this has become a broader political issue signed into law by George H.W. Bush. Like it's not it's not obviously an issue on which Republicans are committed to the culture war approach. Only the fact that they don't that these researchers don't see a big shift in Democratic vote share until 1994 seems very instructive to me. Right. Because the 1994 congressional election is in some ways the first modern Republican congressional election with Newt Gingrich's, you know, very hardcore, socially and fiscally conservative contract with America campaign. And it makes a certain amount of sense that that's when you'd see galvanization among communities that are hardest hit by AIDS. Looking at, well, we really can't afford the federal government disinvesting from our communities. We can't afford this kind of morality-laden culture war rhetoric because our people, the people in our communities are dying. So I wonder to a certain extent how relevant this is to Trump, because in some ways it's not a backlash against the Reagan administration's slowness in responding to AIDS. It's a backlash. It it looks like, at least according to this, you know, according to this paper, a backlash against the Gingrich era Republicans willing unwillingness to understand that communities were in crisis and failure to respond to that with anything more than just kind of standard issue ideology. We don't believe that the federal government should be doing more than it is to help you out. I had a real question about the identification strategy in this 
paper, right? Because, you know, uh, so I grew up in, in the village in, in New York in one of the congressional districts that is identified in this paper as like a highly impacted congressional district. Um, you know, the other ones they cite are like the one in San Francisco uh, that I guess Nancy Pelosi represents now, um, a sort of West Side LA one. Um, and this is a non-random distribution of congressional districts, right? It's the congressional districts that had large neighborhoods in the United States are the ones that had heavy HIV AIDS impact. So you were not able to, in a clear way, distinguish between the impact of the epidemic per se and the larger impact of LGBT rights political mobilization, which, you know, as Jane was pointing out, was very heavily um, intertwined. Uh, Now, there was LGBT rights activism before that. There's Stonewall riots. And even before then, the Mattachine Society, the first LGBT rights protest took place outside of the White House several years before Stonewall, to be clear. Just want to bring that up. Right. No, no, no. So there there is a long history of lgbt rights advocacy but i think that there is an argument to be made that there is not a partisan divide on lgbt issues until the 1990s um and so like one thing i remember i was reporting years ago during the 2016 primary on the clinton administration's stance on don't ask don't tell and uh defensive marriage act and one thing that sort of like old timers of LGBT rights movement said to me was like, look, you have to understand that Bill Clinton was the first presidential candidate to appeal to the gay community as a community, right? That like whatever their disagreements with the calls he made on different things, he said in a way that Michael Dukakis and Walter Mondale and um, Jimmy Carter and all Republicans uh had never done, I recognize you, LGBT America, as a political community, and I would like your support as a politician who has your community's interests at heart. And there are specific ways in which he advanced those community interests. Um, Some of that was stuff around HIV AIDS. Some of it was stuff around Don't Ask, Don't Tell at the time it was implemented was a progressive change. Right. It was supposed to be this amazing solution. The kind of Solomon splitting the baby of, you know, like, oh, we can somehow make all of these constituencies happy. And it's important to remember that because I think that in context at the time, I, there were a lot of you know LGBT rights groups, and even at that time, probably just quote unquote gay rights groups because it was like 1993. But you, know, it seemed at like a solution in which you would be able to serve in the military, you just couldn't disclose. Right, and and you know, it, it of course sounds absurd by contemporary standards, but Bill Clinton appointed an openly gay man to be ambassador to Luxembourg. And he was blocked by Senate Republicans uh, on the theory that it was unacceptable to have an openly gay man serve as ambassador to Luxembourg. So that was the state of the partisan divide in the 1990s. I think if you look at American politics before Bill Clinton, there was gay rights activism, but there wasn't necessarily partisan politics around it. Now, there were supportive politicians in Greenwich Village, in San Francisco, in West Los Angeles, in other places like that. But as a national, like Bill Clinton was the governor of Arkansas. You know what I mean? And he came to a national campaign and he said, like, this is a topic that is of concern to me. There is a question of rights that needs to be addressed. And so I just don't know how analytically you can distinguish that because HIV AIDS was a cause of the partisanification of gay rights, but also it's caused by a million other things. You know, Hans Knoll's book, uh, Political Ideologies and Political Parties in America, shows that there's a typical pattern in which, like, uh, basically, like, take slingers like us will start arguing about something and only later 
do partisan politicians do it, but you can predict, right? If you look at the takes of the 1980s, it's the same people who are saying, well, we should have higher taxes and universal health care. Um, and the same people who are saying, well, we should desegregate schools who were saying, look, we need to recognize this as a new civil rights cause. Eventually, that worked its way into the partisan political system. And I think it aligned gay voters in a way they might not have been. I mean, you look at the 1980 election and it's like, well, what is the, if you're a gay man who wants his rights, but like also cares about 80 other things, like Jimmy Carter wasn't doing anything for gay rights as such. So like, why would you care? Yeah, it's interesting also, because I went back quickly and Googled about the ambassador to Luxembourg. And it interestingly is uh, the person was uh, James Hormel, who is the meatpacking heir from the Hormel family, who you may have heard of. And it's interesting because a, a lot of what he was what was so egregious that he did was for he uh, sent a fundraising letter for the service members legal defense network that was helping folks who were being pushed out of the military by don't ask, don't tell and a host of other things. And you know, he was termed by a Senate staffer to be the mo- the nation's most aggressive financier of the gay movement, which I'm like, that sounds awesome. But it, it is interesting how, you know, if you go back and people like the act of not saying anything virulently anti-gay in 1980 was a marker of progress. You know, the, the story of uh, the human rights campaign where I used to work, um, you know, began with its efforts to not get, gay people into office, but to get people into office who were not necessarily terrible to gay people. Like the bar in 1980 to 1987 was so low. (laughs) And it's interesting to see how that how that shifted. And you can see that a little bit in this paper. It'll be an interesting question about about this pandemic, right, which is obviously a huge political issue now as a public health issue. It also clearly intersects with various other things that, you know, happen in American society, racial and and class inequities. And I think as we've been talking about with school, um, gender inequities as well are going to be an increasingly prominent sort of aspect of this. But I also would not say there's, there's no COVID equivalent of ACT UP that is like both focused on the short-term public health threat, but also tapping into a semi-realized sense of political uh, opportunity, right? There's no, I mean, active is, uh, what's the movie called? How, How to Survive a Plague? Uh, yeah, it's a great documentary. Uh, you should watch it. It's a it's a very singular organization in, in American history, but I think quite important to the political turn at around the time this paper is talking about. And that kind of activism in sort of their posited mechanism, where it's just like disease is bad, seems mishandled, there is a backlash, leaves out the organizing work. Whereas like right now, there's clearly a backlash against Trump, right? But like, is it creating new institutions? Is it bringing people into political advocacy in a way they weren't involved before? Is it mobilizing new forms of identity that have not previously been incorporated into partisan politics? I don't see any of that happening. Um, And I think it would be a little bit odd, frankly, for it to happen. It is true that the disease is disproportionately impacting low-income people and African-Americans, but I don't think that is the reason why Trump's handling of this has been so poor. Um, He seems genuinely just terrible at being president. I don't I don't know how else to put it. I, I would also say, though, that I do think that because coronavirus, you know, yes, it is disproportionately impacting communities of color because anyone can get it. I think that that has very much changed the calculus on how it's seen and how, for instance, kind of anti-mask attitudes or anti-shutdown attitudes are seen of these badges of freedom because this is a disease that hypothetically could impact anyone. And, you know, perhaps the hottest take I've had on this show is that when you go back and read some of the writing from the late 1980s and early 1980s, or early 1990s, it comes from the right. Um, for instance, William F. Buckley's solution to uh, the HIV AIDS crisis was for everyone who had it to be tattooed. If you're an intravenous drug user, you'd have a tattoo on your arm. If you were a homosexual with HIV, you'd be tattooed on your butt. 
so that you'd be easily identified and the tattooing would take part by the government. And it's been very interesting to see this shift because you can't easily parse down the population most vulnerable to coronavirus by a specific characteristic or a quote unquote behavior. And thus it makes it very challenging to just say, well, we'll just tattoo those people. And so it's been interesting to see how that's shifted on these issues of liberty and individualism. And that's frankly also a very good point that, you know, I think that there's a meme on the left that coronavirus stopped being an urgent national priority when it became clear that it was disproportionately harming like black and Latino people. And that is I can kind if you squint chronologically, you can see how that happens. But the fact of the matter is that a lot of Americans, you know, people are concerned about their children. People are concerned about their own personal health. The epidemiological character of this disease makes it so that the risk to you seems super grim because you don't know exactly how it would turn out if you were to get infected with it. Even if you may objectively be like, you know, a person who when they get sick, tends to do okay. You don't know for sure that that's going to happen. And that scrambles the the politics of this in a way that we don't necessarily see at the national level. But again, as as this starts becoming a school district by school district converse, conversation, I think we really are going to see that people's assessment of what the disease would mean for them is going to loom extremely large and be probably disconnected from the aggregate rates of infection, hospitalization, and death among various stratified communities. I tend to agree. Um, all right, uh, let's let's wrap it up with that. Uh, thanks, guys. Thanks, Jane. Thanks, Dara. Thanks, as always, to our sponsors and to our producer, Jeffrey Geld. And the weeds will return on Friday. Hooray!